Will Bertie scheme to help Bingo Little come off without a hitch? Or are there many more spring-ready hitches hiding in the bushes? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. Thank you so very much to all of you who have gone to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become financial supporters. There are several options to support the podcast, starting at $5 a month. Each of your offers of support comes with a monthly thank you code. Use the codes for any audiobook download and watch your library of classics bloom and grow. Everybody wins! And we get to keep the podcast going strong. Thanks again for your generous support. I had the opportunity last week of chatting with Rob Walsh, podcasting guru and executive at Libsyn, the foremost podcast hosting company. We took a look at my statistics, and it seems like the Classic Tales podcast is in the top 5% of all current podcasts, like all of them. There are 639,000 currently updated podcasts, and mine is in the top 5%. So congratulations for listening to a winner. Rob also mentioned that the largest genre of new podcasts is business podcasts. I asked what he meant. He said that the podcast is to businesses what websites were 13 years ago. Everybody needs one, and everybody's getting one. It gives your business a voice and creates a unique space where you can engage with your clients and customers. Your clients love to hear how you develop your product or come up with your ideas. They'd love to hear you describe your creative process or how you overcame crazy obstacles. Hey, I know content creation, and I can help to make it happen. So if you'd like to have a podcast for your business, let me help you. I can help to develop, write, record, and set up your very own podcast. And I've hammered out a deal with the folks at Libsyn so that if you hire me to set up your podcast, you can get your first two months of podcast hosting free. Maybe you're a writer wanting to expand your readership. Maybe you're a new company with an amazing product. Maybe you'd like to polish your brand with added sophistication podcasting can take you to the next level, and I can help you get there. If you would like me to develop a podcast for your business, please send me an email at bj at thebestaudiobooks.com. Only a limited number of slots are available. I'd love to work with you. Now for our personal moment. Goldie is in seventh grade, and she has one of the leads in the musical they're doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And she came back from her first rehearsal with all of the other leads with lines. And she was like, I found my people. And that was so, (laughs) so great. We're a pretty creative family. I'm a voice actor. Scylla is a writer. Basil is an artist. Seven is an actor. Goldie's a little bit of everything. She's 12, so she's still figuring it all out. But it was so cool for her to find like her little group of people who, you know, get it and understand her. That was neat. 
The other thing, Seven, my son, is in uh, Coriolanus. They're doing Coriolanus at uh, the high school, and he's Menenius. And they're doing it Coriolanus with zombies. His director is amazingly creative, and he has these kids transforming into zombies. And Seven filmed himself transforming, and uh, <laughs> it's it was really cool. It was crazy cool. So we're excited about that. And we're starting to work on the sets on Saturday. So that's what I'll be doing on Saturday. That is our personal moment for the week. Thank you very much. And now, The Inimitable Jeeves, Part 3 of 7, by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 5. The Pride of the Worcesters is Wounded. If there's one thing I like, it's a quiet life. I'm not one of those fellows who goes all restless and depressed if things aren't happening to them all the time. You can't make it too placid for me. Give me regular meals, a good show with decent music every now and then, and one or two pals to totter round with, and I ask no more. That is why the jar, when it came, was such a particularly nasty jar. I mean... I'd returned from Roville with a sort of feeling that from now on nothing could occur to upset me. Aunt Agatha, I imagined, would require at least a year to recover from the Hemingway affair, and apart from Aunt Agatha there isn't anybody who really does much in the way of harrying me. It seemed to me that the skies were blue, so to speak, and no clouds in sight. I little thought—well, look here, what happened was this, and I ask you if it wasn't enough to rattle anybody.' Once a year, Jeeves takes a couple of weeks' vacation and biffs off to the sea or somewhere to restore his tissues. Pretty rotten for me, of course, while he's away. But it has to be stuck, so I stick it. And I must admit that he usually manages to get hold of a fairly decent fellow to look after me in his absence. Well, the time had come round again, and Jeeves was in the kitchen giving the understudy a few tips about his duties. I happened to want a stamp or something, and I toddled down the passage to ask him for it. The silly ass had left the kitchen door open, and I hadn't gone two steps when his voice caught me squarely in the eardrum. You will find, Mr. Wooster, he was saying to the substitute chappie, an exceedingly pleasant and amiable young gentleman, but not intelligent, by no means intelligent. Mentally, he is negligible, quite negligible. Well, I mean to say, what? I suppose, strictly speaking— I ought to have charged in and ticked the blighter off properly in no uncertain voice. But I doubt whether it's humanly possible to tick Jeeves off. Personally, I didn't even have a dash at it. I merely called for my hat and stick in a marked manner and legged it. But the memory rankled, if you know what I mean. We Worcesters do not lightly forget. At least, we do. Some things, appointments and people's birthdays and letters to post and all that, but not an absolute bally insult like the above. I brooded like the Dickens. I was still brooding when I dropped in at the oyster bar at Buck's for a quick bracer. I needed a bracer rather particularly at the moment, because I was on my way to lunch with Aunt Agatha. A pretty frightful ordeal, believe me or believe me not, even though I took it that, after what had happened at Roville, she would be in a fairly subdued and amiable mood. I had just had one quick and another rather slower, and was feeling about as cheerio as was possible under the cirques, when a muffled voice hailed me from the northeast, and turning round, I saw young Bingo Little propped up in a corner, wrapping himself round a sizable chunk of bread and cheese. 
Hello, 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 I said. Haven't seen you for ages. You've not been in here lately, have you? No, I've been living out in the country. Eh? I said. For Bingo's loathing of the country was well known. Whereabouts? Down in Hampshire, at a place called Ditteridge. Now, really? I know some people who've got a house there, the Glossops. Have you met them? Why, that's where I'm staying, said young Bingo. I'm tutoring the Glossop kid. What for? I said. I couldn't seem to see young Bingo as a tutor, though of course he did get a degree of sorts at Oxford. I suppose you can always fool some of the people some of the time. What for? For money, of course. An absolute sitter came unstitched in the second race at Haydock Park, said young Bingo with some bitterness. And I dropped my entire month's allowance. I hadn't the nerve to touch my uncle for any more. So it was a case of buzzing round to the agents and getting a job. I've been down there three weeks. I haven't met the Glossop kid. Don't, advised Bingo briefly. The only one of the family I really know is the girl. I had hardly spoken these words when the most extraordinary change came over young Bingo's face. His eyes bulged, his cheeks flushed, and his Adam's apple hopped about like one of those India rubber balls on the top of a fountain in a shooting gallery. Oh, Bertie, he said, in a strangled sort of voice. I looked at the poor fish anxiously. I knew that he was always falling in love with someone, but it didn't seem possible that even he could have fallen in love with Honoria Glossop. To me the girl was simply nothing more or less than a pot of poison. One of those dashed, large, brainy, strenuous, dynamic girls you see so many of these days. She had been at Girton, where, in addition to enlarging her brain to the most frightful extent, she had gone in for every kind of sport and developed the physique of a middleweight catch-as-catch-can wrestler. I'm not sure she didn't box for the varsity while she was up. The effect she had on me whenever she appeared was to make me want to slide into a cellar and lie low till they blew the all clear. Yet here was young Bingo obviously all for her. There was no mistaking it. The love-light was in the blighter's eyes. I worship her, Bertie. I worship the very ground she treads on, continued the patient in a loud, penetrating voice. Fred Thompson and one or two fellows had come in, and McGarry, the chappie behind the bar, was listening with his ears flapping. But there's no reticence about Bingo. He always reminds me of the hero of a musical comedy who takes the centre of the stage, gathers the boys round him in a circle, and tells them all about his love at the top of his voice. Have you told her? No, I haven't the nerve. But we walk together in the garden most evenings, and... It sometimes seems to me that there is a look in her eyes. I know that look, like a sergeant major. Nothing of the kind, like a tender goddess. Have a second, old thing, I said. Are you sure we're talking about the same girl? The one I mean is Honoria. Perhaps there's a younger sister or something I've not heard of. Her name is Honoria, bawled Bingo reverently. And she strikes you as a tender goddess? She does. God bless you, I said. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. Another bit of bread and cheese, he said to the lad behind the bar. You're keeping your strength up, I said. This is my lunch. I've got to meet Oswald at Waterloo at one fifteen to catch the train back. I brought him up to town to see the dentist. 
Oswald? Is that the kid? Yes, pestilential to a degree. Pestilential? That reminds me, I'm lunching with my Aunt Agatha. I'll have to pop off now, or I'll be late. I hadn't seen Aunt Agatha since that little affair of the pearls, and while I didn't anticipate any great pleasure from gnawing a bone in her society, I must say that there was one topic of conversation I felt pretty confident she wouldn't touch on, and that was the subject of my matrimonial future. I mean, when a woman's made a bloomer like the one Aunt Agatha made at Roville, you'd naturally think that a decent shame would keep her off it for, at any rate, a month or two. But women beat me. I mean to say, as regards nerve. You'd hardly credit it, but she actually started in on me with the fish. Absolutely with the fish, I give you my solemn word. We'd hardly exchanged a word about the weather when she let me have it without a blush. Bertie, she said, I've been thinking again about you and how necessary it is that you should get married. I quite admit that I was dreadfully mistaken in my opinion of that terrible, hypocritical girl at Roville, but this time there is no danger of an error. By great good luck I have found the very wife for you, a girl whom I have only recently met, but whose family is above suspicion. She has plenty of money, too, though that does not matter in your case. The great point is that she is strong, self-reliant, and sensible, and will counterbalance the deficiencies and weaknesses of your character. She has met you, and while there is naturally much in you of which she disapproves, she does not dislike you. I know this, for I have sounded her, guardedly, of course, and I am sure that you have only to make the first advances. Who is it? I would have said it long before, but the shock had made me swallow a bit of roll the wrong way, and I had only just finished turning purple and trying to get a bit of air back into the old windpipe. Who is it? Sir Roderick Glossop's daughter, Honoria. No, no, I cried, paling under the tan. Don't be silly, Bertie. She is just the wife for you. Yes, but look here. She would mould you. But I don't want to be moulded. Aunt Agatha gave me the kind of look she used to give me when I was a kid, and had been found in the jam cupboard. Bertie, I hope you're not going to be troublesome. Well, but I mean, Lady Glossop has very kindly invited you to Dittridge Hall for a few days. I told her you would be delighted to come down tomorrow. I'm sorry, but I've got a dashed important engagement tomorrow. What engagement? Well, Dad, you have no engagement. And even if you had, you must put it off. I shall be very seriously annoyed, Bertie, if you do not go to Dittridge Hall tomorrow. Oh, right ho, I said. It wasn't two minutes after I had parted from Aunt Agatha before the old fighting spirit of the Worcesters reasserted itself. Ghastly as the peril which was loomed before me, I was conscious of a rummy sort of exhilaration. It was a tight corner, but the tighter the corner I felt, the more juicily should I score off Jeeves when I got myself out of it without a bit of help from him. Ordinarily, of course, I should have consulted him and trusted him to solve the difficulty. But after what I had heard him saying in the kitchen, I was dashed if I was going to demean myself. When I got home, I addressed the man with light abandon. Jeeves, I said, I'm in a bit of a difficulty. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. Yes, quite a bad hole. In fact, you might say on the brink of a precipice, and faced by an awful doom. If I could be of any assistance, sir. 
Oh, no, no, no. Thanks very much, but no, no, I won't trouble you. I've no doubt I shall be able to get out of it by myself. Very good, sir. So that was that. I'm bound to say I'd have welcomed a bit more curiosity from the fellow, but that is Jeeves all over. Cloaks his emotions, if you know what I mean. Honoria was away when I got to Ditteridge on the following afternoon. Her mother told me that she was staying with some people named Braithwaite in the neighbourhood, and would be back next day, bringing the daughter of the house with her for a visit. She said I would find Oswald out in the grounds, and such is a mother's love, that she spoke as if that were a bit of a boost for the grounds, and an inducement to go there. Rather decent, the grounds at Ditteridge. A couple of terraces, a bit of lawn with a cedar on it, a bit of shrubbery, and finally a small but goodish lake, with a stone bridge running across it. Directly I'd worked my way round the shrubbery, I spotted young Bingo leaning against the bridge smoking a cigarette. Sitting on the stonework, fishing, was a species of kid whom I took to be Oswald the Plague Spot. Bingo was both surprised and delighted to see me, and introduced me to the kid. If the latter was surprised and delighted too, he concealed it like a diplomat. He just looked at me, raised his eyebrows slightly, and went on fishing. He was one of those supercilious striplings who give you the impression that you went to the wrong school and that your clothes don't fit. That is Oswald, said Bingo. What? I replied cordially. Could be sweeter. How are you? Oh, all right, said the kid. Nice place, this. Yeah, all right, said the kid. Having a good time fishing? Oh, all right, said the kid. Young Bingo led me off to commune apart. Doesn't jolly old Oswald's incessant flow of prattle make your head ache sometimes? I asked. Bingo sighed. It's a hard job. What's a hard job? Loving him. Do you love him? I asked, surprised. I shouldn't have thought it could be done. I try to, said young Bingo, for her sake. She's coming back tomorrow, Bertie. So I heard. She is coming, my love, my own. Absolutely, I said. But touching on young Oswald once more, do you have to be with him all day? How do you manage to stick it? Oh, he doesn't give much trouble. When we aren't working, he sits on that bridge all the time, trying to catch tiddlers. Why don't you shove him in? Shove him in? It seems to me distinctly the thing to do, I said, regarding the stripling's back with a good deal of dislike. You'd wake him up a bit, and make him take an interest in things. Bingo shook his head a bit wistfully. Your proposition attracts me, he said, but I'm afraid it can't be done. You see, she would never forgive me. She is devoted to the little brute. Great Scott, I cried. I've got it. I don't know if you know that feeling, when you get an inspiration and tingle all down your spine, from the soft collar, as now worn, to the very soles of the old Waukeses. Jeeves, I suppose, feels that way more or less all the time, but it isn't often it comes to me. But now, all nature seemed to be shouting at me, You've clicked! And I grabbed young Bingo by the arm, in a way that must have made him feel as if a horse had bitten him. His finely chiselled features were twisted with agony and what not, and he asked me what the dickens I thought I was playing at. Bingo, I said, what would Jeeves have done? How do you mean, what would Jeeves have done? I mean, what would he have advised in a case like yours? I mean, you wanting to make a hit with Honoria Glossop and all that. I take it from me, laddie. 
"'He would have shoved you behind that clump of bushes over there. "'He would have got me to lure Honoria onto the bridge somehow. "'Then, at the proper time, "'he would have told me to give the kid a pretty hefty jab in the small of the back, "'so as to shoot him into the water. "'And then you would have dived in and hauled him out. "'How about it?' "'You didn't think that out by yourself, Bertie,' "'said young Bingo in a hushed sort of voice. "'Yes, I did.' "'Jeeves isn't the only fellow with ideas.' "'But it's absolutely wonderful. "'Just a suggestion. "'The only objection I can see "'is that it would be so dashed awkward for you. "'I mean to say, suppose the kid turned round "'and said you had shoved him in. "'That would make you frightfully unpopular with her. "'I don't mind risking that.' "'The man was deeply moved. "'Bertie, this is noble. "'No, no!' He clasped my hand silently, then chuckled like the last drop of water going down the waste pipe in a bath. Now what? I said. I was only thinking, said young Bingo, how fearfully wet Oswald will get. Oh, happy day! Chapter 6 The Hero's Reward "'I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's rummy how nothing in this world ever seems to be absolutely perfect. "'The drawback to this otherwise singularly fruity binge was, of course, "'the fact that Jeeves wouldn't be on the spot to watch me in action. "'Still, apart from that, there wasn't a flaw. "'The beauty of the thing was, you see, that nothing could possibly go wrong. "'You know how it is as a rule.' when you want to get Chappie A on spot B at exactly the same moment when Chappie C is on spot D, there's always a chance of a hitch. Take the case of a general, I mean to say, who's planning out a big movement. He tells one regiment to capture the hill with the windmill on it at the exact moment when another regiment is taking the bridgehead or something down in the valley, and everything gets all messed up. And then, when they're chatting the thing over in camp that night, the colonel of the first regiment says, Oh, sorry, did you say the hill with the windmill? I thought you said the one with the flock of sheep. And there you are. But in this case, nothing like that could happen, because Oswald and Bingo would be on the spot right along, so that all I had to worry about was getting Honoria there in due season. And I managed that all right, first shot, by asking her if she would come for a stroll in the grounds with me as I had something particular to say to her. She had arrived shortly after lunch in the car with the Braithwaite girl. I was introduced to the latter, a tallish girl with blue eyes and fair hair. I rather took to her. She was so unlike Honoria, and if I had been able to spare the time, I shouldn't have minded talking to her for a bit. But business was business. I had fixed it up with Bingo to be behind the bushes at three sharp. So I got hold of Honoria and steered her out through the grounds in the direction of the lake. "'You're very quiet, Mr. Worcester,' she said. "'Made me jump a bit. I was concentrating pretty tensely at the moment. We had just come in sight of the lake, and I was casting a keen eye over the ground to see that everything was in order. Everything appeared to be as arranged. The kid Oswald was hunched up on the bridge, and as Bingo wasn't visible, I took it that he had got into position.' "'My watch made it two minutes after the hour. "'Eh?' I said. "'Oh, ah, yes, I was just thinking. "'You said you had something important to say to me.' "'Absolutely! "'I decided to open the proceedings "'by sort of paving the way for young Bingo. "'I mean to say, 
without actually mentioning his name, I wanted to prepare the girl's mind for the fact that, surprising as it might seem, there was someone who had long loved her from afar and all that sort of rot. It's like this, I said. It may sound rummy and all that, but there's somebody who's frightfully in love with you and so forth. A friend of mine, you know. Oh, a friend of yours. Yes. She gave a kind of laugh. Well, why doesn't he tell me so? Well, you see, that's the sort of chap he is. Kind of shrinking, diffident kind of fellow. Hasn't got the nerve. Thinks you so much above him, don't you know? Looks on you as a sort of goddess. Worships the ground you tread on. But can't whack up the ginger to tell you so. This is very interesting. Yes, he's not a bad chap, you know, in his way. Rather an ass, perhaps, but well-meaning. Well, that's the position. You might just bear it in mind, what? How funny you are. She chucked back her head and laughed, with considerable vim. She had a penetrating sort of laugh, rather like a train going into a tunnel. It didn't sound over-musical to me, and on the kid Oswald it appeared to jar not a little. He gazed at us with a good deal of dislike. "'I wish the dickens you wouldn't make that row,' he said, "'scaring all the fish away.' It broke the spell a bit. Honoria changed the subject. "'I do wish Oswald wouldn't sit on the bridge like that,' she said. "'I'm sure it isn't safe. He might easily fall in.' "'I'll go and tell him,' I said. "'I suppose the distance between the kid and me at this juncture was about five yards, "'but I got the impression that it was nearer a hundred, "'and as I started to toddle across the intervening space, "'I had a rummy feeling that I'd done this very thing before. "'Then I remembered.' Years ago, at a country-house party, I had been roped in to play the part of a butler in some amateur theatricals in aid of some ghastly charity or other, and I had had to open the proceedings by walking across the empty stage from left upper entrance and shoving a tray on the table down right. They'd impressed it on me at rehearsals that I mustn't take the course at a quick heel and toe, like a chappy finishing strongly in a walking race, and the result was that I kept the brakes on to such an extent that it seemed to me as if I was never going to get to the bally table at all. The stage seemed to stretch out in front of me like a trackless desert, and there was a kind of breathless hush, as if all nature had paused to concentrate its attention on me personally. Well, I felt just like that now. I had a kind of dry gulping in my throat, and the more I walked, the farther away the kid seemed to get till suddenly I found myself standing just behind him without quite knowing how I'd got there. "'Hello,' I said with a sickly sort of grin, wasted on the kid, because he didn't bother to turn round and look at me. He merely wiggled his left ear in a rather peevish manner. "'I don't know when I've met anybody in whose life I appeared to mean so little.' "'Hello,' I said. "'Fishing?' I laid my hand in a sort of elderly brotherly way on his shoulder. "'Here, look out!' said the kid, wobbling on his foundations. It was one of those things that want doing quickly or not at all. I shut my eyes and pushed. Something seemed to give. There was a scrambling sound, a kind of yelp, a scream in the offing and a splash. And so the long day wore on, so to speak. I opened my eyes. The kid was just coming to the surface. Help! I shouted, cocking an eye on the bush from which young Bingo was scheduled to emerge. Nothing happened. Young Bingo didn't emerge to the slightest extent whatever. I say, help! I shouted again. 
I don't want to bore you with reminiscences of my theatrical career, but I must just touch once more on that appearance of mine as the butler. The scheme on that occasion had been that when I put the tray on the table, the heroine would come on and say a few words to get me off. Well, on the night, the misguided female forgot to stand by, and it was a full minute before the search party located her and shot her onto the stage. And all that time I had to stand there, waiting. A rotten sensation, believe me. And this was just the same, only worse. I understood what these writer chappies mean when they talk about time standing still. Meanwhile, the kid Oswald was presumably being cut off in his prime, and it seemed to me that some sort of steps ought to be taken about it. What I had seen of the lad hadn't particularly endeared him to me, but it was undoubtedly a bit thick to let him pass away. I don't know when I have seen anything more grubby and unpleasant than the lake as viewed from the bridge, but the thing apparently had to be done. I chucked off my coat and vaulted over. It seems rummy that water should be so much wetter when you go into it with your clothes on than when you're just bathing, but take it from me that it is. I was only under about three seconds, I suppose, but I came up feeling like the bodies you read of in the paper, which had evidently been in the water several days. I felt clammy and bloated. At this point the scenario took another snag. I had assumed that directly I came to the surface, I should get hold of the kid and steer him courageously to shore. But he hadn't waited to be steered. When I had finished getting the water out of my eyes and had time to look around, I saw him about ten yards away, going strongly, and using, I think, the Australian crawl. The spectacle took all the heart out of me. I mean to say, the whole essence of a rescue, if you know what I mean, is that the party of the second part shall keep fairly still and in one spot. If he starts swimming off on his own account and can obviously give you at least forty yards in the hundred, where are you? The whole thing falls through. It didn't seem to me that there was much to be done except get ashore, so I got ashore. By the time I had landed, the kid was halfway to the house. Look at it from whatever angle you like. The thing was a washout. I was interrupted in my meditations by a noise like the Scotch Express going under a bridge. It was Honoria Glossop laughing. She was standing at my elbow, looking at me in a rummy manner. Oh, Bertie, you are funny, she said. And even in that moment there seemed something sinister in the words. She had never called me anything except Mr. Worcester before. How wet you are! Yes, I am wet. You had better hurry into the house and change. Yes. I wrung a gallon or two of water out of my clothes. You are funny, she said again, first proposing in that extraordinary roundabout way, and then pushing poor little Oswald into the lake so as to impress me by saving him. I managed to get the water out of my throat sufficiently to try to correct this fearful impression. No, no! He said you pushed him in, and I saw you do it. Oh, I'm not angry, Bertie. I think it was too sweet of you. But I'm quite sure it's time that I took you in hand. You certainly want someone to look after you. You've been seeing too many moving pictures. I suppose the next thing you would have done would have been to set the house on fire so as to rescue me. She looked at me in a proprietary sort of way. I think, she said, I shall be able to make something of you, Bertie. It is true yours has been a wasted life up to the present, but you are still young, and there is a lot of good in you. No, really, there isn't, 
Oh, yes, there is. It simply wants bringing out. Now you run straight up to the house and change your wet clothes, or you will catch cold. And if you know what I mean, there was a sort of motherly note in her voice, which seemed to tell me, even more than her actual words, that I was for it. As I was coming downstairs after changing, I ran into young Bingo, looking festive to a degree. Bertie, he said, just the man I wanted to see. Bertie, a wonderful thing has happened. You blighter, I cried. What became of you? Do you know? Oh, you mean about being in those bushes. I hadn't time to tell you about that. It's all off. All off? Bertie, I was actually starting to hide in those bushes when the most extraordinary thing happened. Walking across the lawn, I saw the most radiant, the most beautiful girl in the world. There is none like her. None. Bertie, do you believe in love at first sight? You do believe in love at first sight, don't you, Bertie, old man? Directly I saw her, she seemed to draw me like a magnet. I seemed to forget everything. We two were alone in a world of music and sunshine. I joined her. I got into conversation. She is Miss Braithwaite, Bertie. Daphne Braithwaite. Directly our eyes met, I realised that what I had imagined to be my love for Honoria Glossop had been a mere passing whim. Bertie, you do believe in love at first sight, don't you? She is so wonderful, so sympathetic, like a tender goddess. At this point I left the blighter. Two days later I got a letter from Jeeves. The weather, it ended, continues fine. I have had one exceedingly enjoyable bathe. I gave one of those hollow, mirthless laughs and went downstairs to join Honoria. I had an appointment with her in the drawing-room. She was going to read Ruskin to me. Chapter 7 Introducing Claude and Eustace The blow fell precisely at one forty-five summer-time. Spencer, Aunt Agatha's butler, was offering me the fried potatoes at the moment, and such was my emotion that I lofted six of them onto the sideboard with the spoon. Shaken to the core, if you know what I mean. Mark you, I was in a pretty enfeebled condition already. I had been engaged to Honoria Glossop nearly two weeks, and during all that time not a day had passed without her putting in some heavy work in the direction of what Aunt Agatha called moulding me. I had read solid literature till my eyes bubbled. We had legged it together through miles of picture galleries, and I had been compelled to undergo classical concerts to an extent you would hardly believe. All in all, therefore, I was in no fit state to receive shocks, especially shocks like this. Honoria had lugged me round to lunch at Aunt Agatha's, and I had just been saying to myself, Death, where is thy jolly old sting? when she hove the bomb. Bertie, she said suddenly, as if she had just remembered it. What is the name of that man of yours? Your valet? Eh? Oh, Jeeves! I think he's a bad influence on you, said Honoria. When we are married, you must get rid of Jeeves. It was at this point that I jerked the spoon and sent six of the best and crispest sailing onto the sideboard, with Spencer gambling after them like a dignified old retriever. Get rid of Jeeves? I gasped. Yes, I don't like him. I don't like him. 
said Aunt Agatha. But I can't. I mean, why, I couldn't carry on for a day without Jeeves. You will have to, said Honoria. I don't like him at all. I don't like him at all, said Aunt Agatha. I never did. Ghastly, what? I'd always had an idea that marriage was a bit of a washout, but I'd never dreamed that it demanded such frightful sacrifices from a fellow. I passed the rest of the meal in a sort of stupor. The scheme had been, if I remember, that after lunch I should go off and caddy for Honoria on a shopping tour down Regent Street. But when she got up and started collecting me and the rest of her things, Aunt Agatha stopped her. You run along, dear, she said. I want to say a few words to Bertie. So Honoria legged it, and Aunt Agatha drew up her chair and started in. Bertie, she said, dear Honoria does not know it, but a little difficulty has arisen about your marriage. By Jove, not really, I said, hope starting to dawn. Oh, it's nothing at all, of course. It's only a little exasperating. The fact is, Sir Roderick is being rather troublesome. Thinks I'm not a good bet? Wants to scratch the fixture? Well, perhaps he's right. Pray do not be so absurd, Bertie. It is nothing so serious as that. But the nature of Sir Roderick's profession, unfortunately, makes him overcautious. I didn't get it. Overcautious? Yes, I suppose it is inevitable. A nerve specialist with his extensive practice can hardly help taking a rather warped view of humanity. I got what she was driving at now. Sir Roderick Glossop, Honoria's father, is always called a nerve specialist because it sounds better, but everybody knows that he's really a sort of janitor to the loony bin. I mean to say, when your uncle the Duke begins to feel the strain a bit, and you find him in the blue drawing-room sticking straws in his hair, old Glossop is the first person you send for. He toddles round, gives the patient the once-over, talks about over-excited nervous systems, and recommends complete rest and seclusion and all that sort of thing. Practically every posh family in the country has called him in at one time or another, and I suppose that being in that position, I mean constantly having to sit on people's heads while their nearest and dearest phone to the asylum to send round the wagon, does tend to make a chappy take what you might call a warped view of humanity. You mean he thinks I may be a loony, and he doesn't want a loony son-in-law, I said. Aunt Agatha seemed rather peeved than otherwise at my beady intelligence. Of course he does not think anything so ridiculous. I told you he was simply exceedingly cautious. He wants to satisfy himself that you are perfectly normal. Here she paused, for Spencer had come in with the coffee. When he had gone, she went on. He appears to have got hold of some extraordinary story about your having pushed his son Oswald into the lake at Dittridge Hall. Incredible, of course. Even you would hardly do a thing like that. Well, I did sort of lean into him, you know, and he shot off the bridge. Oswald definitely accuses you of having pushed him into the water. That has disturbed Sir Roderick, and unfortunately it has caused him to make inquiries, and he has heard about your poor Uncle Henry. She eyed me with a good deal of solemnity, and I took a grave sip of coffee. We were peeping into the family cupboard and having a look at the good old skeleton. My late Uncle Henry, you see, was by way of being the blot on the Worcester escutcheon. An extremely decent chappy, personally, and one who had always endeared himself to me by tipping me with considerable lavishness when I was at school. 
but there's no doubt he did at times do rather rummy things, notably keeping eleven pet rabbits in his bedroom, and I suppose a purist might have considered him more or less off his onion. In fact, to be perfectly frank, he wound up his career, happy to the last and completely surrounded by rabbits, in some sort of a home. It is very absurd, of course, continued Aunt Agatha, if any of the family had inherited poor Henry's eccentricity, and it was nothing more. He would have been Claude and Eustace, and there could not be two brighter boys. Claude and Eustace were twins, and had been kids at school with me in my last summer term. Casting my mind back, it seemed to me that Bright just about described them. The whole of that term, as I remembered it, had been spent in getting them out of a series of frightful rows. Look how well they are doing at Oxford. Your Aunt Emily had a letter from Claude only the other day, saying that they hoped to be elected shortly to a very important college club, called the Seekers. Seekers? I couldn't recall any club of the name in my time at Oxford. What do they seek? Claude did not say. Truth or knowledge, I should imagine. It is evidently a very desirable club to belong to, for Claude added that Lord Rainsby, the Earl of Datchet's son, was one of his fellow candidates. However, we are wandering from the point, which is that Sir Roderick wants to have a quiet talk with you quite alone. Now, I rely on you, Bertie, to be, I won't say intelligent, but at least sensible. Don't giggle nervously. Try to keep that horrible glassy expression out of your eyes. Don't yawn nor fidget. And remember that Sir Roderick is the president of the West London branch of the Anti-Gambling League. So please do not talk about horse racing. He will lunch with you at your flat tomorrow at one thirty. Please remember that he drinks no wine, strongly disapproves of smoking, and can only eat the simplest food, owing to an impaired digestion. Do not offer him coffee, for he considers it the root of half the nerve trouble in the world. I should think a dog biscuit and a glass of water would about meet the case, what? Bertie? Oh, all right. Merely persiflage. Now, it is precisely that sort of idiotic remark that would be calculated to arouse Sir Roderick's worst suspicions. Do please to refrain from any misguided flippancy when you are with him. He is a very serious-minded man. Are you going? Well, please remember all I have said. I rely on you, and if anything goes wrong, I shall never forgive you. Right-o, I said. And so home, with a jolly day to look forward to. I breakfasted pretty late next morning, and went for a stroll afterwards. It seemed to me that anything I could do to clear the old lemon ought to be done, and a bit of fresh air generally relieves that rather foggy feeling that comes over a fellow early in the day. I had taken a stroll in the park, and got back as far as Hyde Park Corner, when some blighter sloshed me between the shoulder-blades. It was young Eustace, my cousin. He was arm-in-arm arm with two other fellows, the one on the outside being my cousin Claude, and the one in the middle, a pink-faced chappy, with light hair and an apologetic sort of look. "'Bertie, old egg!' said young Eustace affably. "'Hello,' I said, not frightfully chirpily. "'Fancy running into you, the one man in London who can support us in the style we are accustomed to. "'By the way, you've never met old Dogface, have you? "'Dogface, this is my cousin Bertie. "'Lord Rainsby, Mr. Worcester. "'We've just been round to your flat, Bertie, bitterly disappointed that you were out, "'but were hospitably entertained by old Jeeves. "'That man's a corker, Bertie. Stick to him.' 
"'What are you doing in London?' I asked. "'Oh, buzzing around. We're just up for the day. Flying visit strictly unofficial. We oiled back on the 310. And now, touching that lunch you very decently volunteered to stand us, which shall it be, Ritz, Savoy, Carlton? Or, if you're a member of Ciro's, the embassy, that would do just as well. I can't give you lunch. I've got an engagement myself, and by Jove!' I said, taking a look at my watch. I'm late. I hailed a taxi. Sorry. As man to man, then, said Eustace. Lend us a fiver. I hadn't time to stop and argue. I unbelted the fiver and hopped into the cab. It was twenty to two when I got to the flat. I bounded into the sitting room, but it was empty. Jeeves shimmied in. Sir Roderick has not yet arrived, sir. Good egg, I said. I thought I should find him smashing up the furniture. My experience is that the less you want a fellow, the more punctual he's bound to be, and I had had a vision of the old lad pacing the rug in my sitting-room, saying, He cometh not, and generally hotting up. Is everything in order? I fancy you will find the arrangements quite satisfactory, sir. What are you giving us? Cold consomme, a cutlet, and a savoury, sir, with lemon squash, iced. "'Well, I don't see how that can hurt him. "'Don't go getting carried away by the excitement of the thing "'and start bringing in coffee.' "'No, sir.' "'And don't let your eyes get glassy, because if you do, "'you're apt to find yourself in a padded cell before you know where you are.' "'Very good, sir.' "'There was a ring at the bell. "'Stand by, Jeeves,' I said. "'We're off.' "'Chapter 8. Sir Roderick Comes to Lunch.' I had met Sir Roderick Glossop before, of course, but only when I was with Honoria, and there is something about Honoria which makes almost anybody you meet in the same room seem sort of undersized and trivial by comparison. I had never realised till this moment what an extraordinarily formidable old bird he was. He had a pair of shaggy eyebrows which gave his eyes a piercing look, which was not at all the sort of thing a fellow wanted to encounter on an empty stomach. He was fairly tall and fairly broad, and he had the most enormous head, with practically no hair on it, which made it seem bigger, and much more like the Dome of St. Paul's. I suppose he must have taken about a nine or something in hats. Shows what a rotten thing it is to let your brain develop too much. What ho, what ho, what ho, I said, trying to strike the genial note, and then had a sudden feeling that that was just the sort of thing I had been warned not to say. Dash difficult it is to start things going properly on an occasion like this. A fellow living in a London flat is so handicapped. I mean to say, if I had been the young squire greeting the visitor in the country, I would have said, Welcome to Meadow Sweet Hall, or something zippy like that. It sounds silly to say, Welcome to number 6A Crichton Mansions, Barclay Street, W. I'm afraid I'm a little late, he said as we sat down. I was detained at my club by Lord Alastair Hungerford, the Duke of Ramphelin's son. His grace, he informed me, had exhibited a renewal of the symptoms which had been causing the family so much concern. I could not leave him immediately, hence my unpunctuality, which I trust has not discommoded you. Oh, no, not at all. So the Duke is off his rocker, what? The expression which you use is not precisely the one I should have employed myself, with reference to the head of perhaps the noblest family in England, 
but there is no doubt that cerebral excitement does, as you suggest, exist in no small degree. He sighed as well as he could with his mouth full of cutlet. A profession like mine is a great strain, a great strain. Must be. Sometimes I am appalled at what I see around me. He stopped suddenly and sort of stiffened. Do you keep a cat, Mr. Worcester? Eh, hey, what? Cat? No, no cat. I was conscious of a distinct impression that I had heard a cat mewing either in the room or very near to where we are sitting. Probably a taxi or something in the street. I fear I do not follow you. I mean to say taxi squawk, you know, rather like cats in a sort of way. I had not observed the resemblance, he said rather coldly. Have some lemon squash, I said. The conversation seemed to be getting rather difficult. Thank you. Half a glass full, if I may. The hell brew appeared to buck him up, for he resumed in a slightly more pally manner. I have a particular dislike for cats, but I was saying, Oh, yes, sometimes I am positively appalled at what I see around me. It is not only the cases which come under my professional notice, painful as many of those are. It is what I see as I go about London. Sometimes it seems to me that the whole world is mentally unbalanced. This very morning, for example, a most singular and distressing occurrence took place as I was driving from my house to the club. The day being clement, I had instructed my chauffeur to open my landolet, and I was leaning back, deriving no little pleasure from the sunshine, when our progress was arrested in the middle of the thoroughfare by one of those blocks in the traffic which are inevitable in so congested a system as that of London. I suppose I had been letting my mind wander for a bit, for when he stopped and took a sip of lemon squash, I had a feeling that I was listening to a lecture and was expected to say something. Hear, hear, I said. I beg your pardon. Nothing, nothing. You were saying... The vehicles proceeding in the opposite direction had also been temporarily arrested, but after a moment they were permitted to proceed. I had fallen into meditation when suddenly the most extraordinary thing took place. My hat was snatched abruptly from my head, and as I looked back I perceived it being waved in a kind of feverish triumph from the interior of a taxicab, which, even as I looked, disappeared through a gap in the traffic and was lost to sight. I didn't laugh, but I distinctly heard a couple of my floating ribs part from their moorings under the strain. Must have been meant for a practical joke, I said. What? This suggestion didn't seem to please the old boy. I trust, he said. I am not deficient in an appreciation of the humorous, but I confess that I am at a loss to detect anything akin to pleasantry in the outrage. The action was beyond all question, that of a mentally unbalanced subject. These mental lesions may express themselves in almost any form. The Duke of Ramphelin, to whom I had occasion to allude just now, is under the impression— this is in the strictest confidence, that he is a canary, 
and his seizure today, which so perturbed Lord Alistair, was due to the fact that a careless footman had neglected to bring him his morning lump of sugar. Cases are common, again, of men waylaying women and cutting off portions of their hair. It is from a branch of this latter form of mania that I should be disposed to imagine that my assailant was suffering. I can only trust that he will be placed under proper control before he— Mr. Worcester, there is a cat close at hand. It is not in the street. The mewing appears to come from the adjoining room. This time I had to admit that there was no doubt about it. There was a distinct sound of mewing coming from the next room. I punched the bell for Jeeves, who drifted in and stood waiting with an air of respectful devotion. Sir? Oh, Jeeves, I said. Cats! What about it? Are there any cats in the flat? Only the three in your bedroom, sir. What? Cats in his bedroom? I heard Sir Roderick whisper in a kind of stricken way and his eyes hit me amidships like a couple of bullets. What do you mean, I said, only the three in my bedroom? The black one, the tabby, and the small lemon-coloured animal, sir. What on earth? I charged round the table in the direction of the door. Unfortunately, Sir Roderick had just decided to edge in that direction himself, with the result that we collided in the doorway with a good deal of force, and staggered out into the hall together. He came smartly out of the clinch, and grabbed an umbrella from the rack. Stand back! he shouted, waving it overhead. Stand back, sir! I am armed! It seemed to me that the moment had come to be soothing. Awfully sorry I barged into you, I said. Wouldn't have had it happen for worlds. I was just dashing out to have a look into things. He appeared a trifle reassured, and lowered the umbrella. But just then the most frightful shindy started in the bedroom. It sounded as if all the cats in London, assisted by delegates from outlying suburbs, had got together to settle their differences once for all, a sort of augmented orchestra of cats. "'This noise is unendurable,' yelled Sir Roderick. "'I cannot hear myself speak.' "'I fancy, sir,' said Jeeves respectfully, "'that the animals may have become somewhat exhilarated as the result of having discovered the fish under Mr. Worcester's bed.' The old boy tottered. "'Fish? Did I hear you rightly?' "'Sir, did you say there was a fish under Mr. Worcester's bed?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Sir Roderick gave a low moan, and reached for his hat and stick. "'You aren't going,' I said. "'Mr. Worcester, I am going. "'I prefer to spend my leisure time in less eccentric society. "'But I say, here, I must come with you. "'I'm sure the whole business can be explained. "'Jeeves, my hat.' "'Jeeves rallied round.' I took the hat from him and shoved it on my head. Good heavens! Beastly shock it was! The bally thing had absolutely engulfed me, if you know what I mean. Even as I was putting it on, I got the sort of impression that it was a trifle roomy, and no sooner had I let it go than it settled down over my ears like a kind of extinguisher. I say, this isn't my hat. It is my hat, said Sir Roderick, in about the coldest, nastiest voice I'd ever heard. The hat which was stolen from me this morning as I drove in my car. But I suppose Napoleon or somebody like that would have been equal to the situation, but I'm bound to say it was too much for me. I just stood there goggling in a sort of coma while the old boy lifted the hat off me and turned to Jeeves. 
I should be glad, my man, he said, if you would accompany me a few yards down the street. I wish to ask you some questions. Very good, sir. Here, but I say, I began, but he left me standing. He stalked out, followed by Jeeves. And at that moment, the row in the bedroom started again, louder than ever. I was about fed up with the whole thing. I mean, cats in your bedroom. A bit thick, what? I don't know how the dickens they had got in, but I was jolly well resolved that they weren't going to stay picnicking there any longer. I flung open the door. I got a momentary flash of about a hundred and fifteen cats of all sizes and colours scrapping in the middle of the room, and then they all shot past me with a rush and out of the front door, and all that was left of the mob scene was the head of a whacking big fish, lying on the carpet and staring up at me in a rather austere sort of way, as if it wanted a written explanation and apology. There was something about the thing's expression that absolutely chilled me and I withdrew on tiptoe and shut the door. And as I did so, I bumped into someone. Oh, sorry, he said. I spun round. It was the pink-faced chappy, Lord something or other, the fellow I had met with Claude and Eustace. I say, he said apologetically, awfully sorry to bother you, but those weren't my cats I met just now legging it downstairs, were they? They looked like my cats. They came out of my bedroom. Then they were my cats he said sadly. Oh, dash it. Did you put cats in my bedroom? Your man, was his name, did. He rather decently said I could keep them there till my train went. I'd just come to fetch them, and now they're gone. Oh, well. It can't be helped, I suppose. I'll take the hat and the fish, anyway. I was beginning to dislike this chappie. Did you put that bally fish there, too? No, that was Eustace's. The hat was Claude's. I sank limply into a chair. I say, you couldn't explain this, could you? I said. The chappie gazed at me in mild surprise. Why don't you know all about it, I say? He blushed profusely. Why, if you don't know about it, I shouldn't wonder if the whole thing didn't seem rummy to you. Rummy is the word. It was for the seekers, you know. The seekers? "'Rather a blood club, you know, up at Oxford, "'which your cousins and I are rather keen on getting into. "'You have to pinch something, you know, to get elected. "'Some sort of a souvenir, you know. "'A policeman's helmet, you know, or a door-knocker or something, you know. "'The room's decorated with the things at the annual dinner, "'and everybody makes speeches and all that sort of thing. "'Rather jolly. "'Well, we wanted rather to make a sort of special effort "'and do the thing in style, if you understand.' "'so we came up to London to see if we couldn't pick up something here "'that would be a bit out of the ordinary. "'And we had the most amazing luck right from the start. "'Your cousin, Claude, managed to collect a quite decent top hat "'out of a passing car, "'and your cousin Eustace got away with a really goodish salmon or something from Harrods, "'and I snaffled three excellent cats all in the first hour. "'We were fearfully braced, I can tell you.' "'and then the difficulty was to know where to park the things till our train went. "'You look beastly conspicuous, you know, "'tooling about London with a fish and a lot of cats. "'And then Eustace remembered you, "'and we all came on here in a cab. "'You were out, but your man said it would be all right. "'When we met you, you were in such a hurry "'that we hadn't time to explain. "'Well, I think I'll be taking the hat, if you don't mind. "'It's gone. "'Gone?' The fellow you pinched it from happened to be the man who was lunching here. 
He took it away with him. Oh, I say, poor old Claude will be upset. Well, how about the goodish salmon or something? Would you care to view the remains? He seemed all broken up when he saw the wreckage. I doubted the committee would accept that, he said sadly. There isn't a frightful lot of it left, what? The cats ate the rest. He sighed deeply. No cats, no fish, no hat. We've had all our trouble for nothing. I do call that hard. And on top of that, I say I hate to ask you, but you couldn't lend me a tenner, could you? A tenner? What for? Well, the fact is, I've got to pop round and bail Claude and Eustace out. They've been arrested. Arrested? Yes. You see, what with the excitement of collaring the hat and the salmon or something, added to the fact that we had rather a festive lunch, they got a bit above themselves, poor chaps, and tried to pinch a motor lorry. Silly, of course, because I don't see how they could have got the thing to Oxford and shown it to the committee. Still, there wasn't any reasoning with them, and when the driver started making a fuss, there was a bit of a mix-up, and Claude and Eustace are more or less languishing in Vine Street Police Station till I pop round and bail them out. So if you could manage a tenner— Oh, thanks, that's fearfully good of you. It would have been too bad to leave them there, what? I mean, they're both such frightfully good chaps, you know. Everybody likes them up at the varsity. They're fearfully popular. I bet they are, I said. When Jeeves came back, I was waiting for him on the mat. I wanted speech with the blighter. Well, I said. Sir Roderick asked me a number of questions, sir, respecting your habits and mode of life, to which I replied guardedly. I don't care about that. What I want to know is why you didn't explain the whole thing to him right at the start. A word from you would have put everything clear. Yes, sir. Now he's gone off thinking me a loony. I should not be surprised from his conversation with me, sir, if some such idea had not entered his head. I was just starting in to speak when the telephone bell rang. Jeeves answered it. No, madam, Mr. Worcester is not in. No, madam, I do not know when he will return. No, madam, he left no message. Yes, madam, I will inform him. He put back the receiver. Mrs. Gregson, sir. Aunt Agatha. I had been expecting it. Ever since the luncheon party had blown out a fuse, her shadow had been hanging over me, so to speak. Does she know? Already? I gather that Sir Roderick has been speaking to her on the telephone, sir, and— No wedding bells for me, what? Jeeves coughed. Mrs. Gregson did not actually confide in me, sir, but I fancy that some such thing may have occurred. She seemed decidedly agitated, sir. It's a rummy thing, but I'd been so snooted by the old boy and the cats and the fish and the hat and the pink-faced chappie and all the rest of it that the bright side simply hadn't occurred to me till now. By Jove! It was like a bally weight rolling off my chest. I gave a yelp of pure relief. Jeeves, I said, I believe you worked the whole thing. Sir? I believe you had the jolly old situation in hand right from the start. Well, sir, Spencer, Mrs. Gregson's butler, who inadvertently chanced to overhear something of your conversation when you were lunching at the house, did mention certain of the details to me, and I confess that, though it may be a liberty to say so, I entertained hopes that something might occur to prevent the match. I doubt if the young lady was entirely suitable to you, sir. 
and she would have shot you out on your ear five minutes after the ceremony. Yes, sir. Spencer informed me that she had expressed some such intention. Mrs. Gregson wishes you to call upon her immediately, sir. She does, eh? What do you advise, Jeeves? I think a trip abroad might prove enjoyable, sir. I shook my head. She'd come after me. Not if you went far enough afield, sir. There are excellent boats leaving every Wednesday and Saturday for New York. Jeeves, I said, you are right as always. Book the tickets. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Inimitable Jeeves, Part 3 of 7, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.